Last week, my family was gone. We were on vacation in Rockwall. I'll tell you more about that in a little bit. Uh, we worshiped with a, I guess you would still call it a church plant. It's a four-year-old church. They were meeting at the YMCA, so we were in the YMCA gym and uh, had a good morning of worship with them. We enjoyed our time. We missed being here with you, and we're glad to be back this morning. We're going to look at Hebrews chapter 4. I want to start by just reminding you of the purpose of the book of Hebrews. It's a twofold purpose. There's a, a negative warning, and there's a positive encouragement. We've talked about this every week. Negatively, Hebrews was written to warn Christians about the danger of falling away. An example of that is Hebrews 2.1. Positively, Hebrews was written to encourage Christians to persevere in the faith. And you can see an example of that at the end of the book, chapter 13, verse 22. It's this dual purpose that runs all the way through the book. Don't fall away. And Hebrews 6 is coming. We're going to talk about this question of security. Can we or can't we actually lose our salvation? But there's a warning that runs through all the, all the book. Do not fall away from following Jesus. And then positively, keep going. Keep believing. Keep trusting. Keep holding to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. If we're going to make sense of chapter 4, we really need to think for just a minute about Psalm 95. We read it earlier, but I just want to point out this connection. Hebrews 3, verse 7, through Hebrews 4, verse 13, refers to, it actually quotes Psalm 95 five times. Depending on the Bible translation you're looking at, you can see the quote. Sometimes it's set off as sort of a different format of text. And so there's a quotation in 3, 7 to 11. There's a quotation in 3, 15. There's a quotation in 4, 3, 4, 5, and 4, 7. All of the quotations from Psalm 95, which means if you're going to make sense of this section, you kind of need to have Psalm 95 in your brain. And here's a cool thing. Psalm 95 is a lot like the book of Hebrews as a whole. They're very similar. It's not a coincidence that over and over and over again in this section, he keeps quoting Psalm 95. Hebrews has this negative warning and a positive call, right? Don't fall away. Keep trusting in Jesus. Psalm 95 has the exact same thing. The first half says, keep worshiping. Worship the Lord. Don't worship any other gods. Keep worshiping the Lord. And the back half of 95 has a warning. These people didn't stay faithful to the Lord. They didn't put their trust in the Lord. And there was a very serious consequence. So there's a similarity in these two passages, Hebrews 4 and then Psalm 95. So again, quickly, let's just read this call to worship. It's beautiful. The language of it is, is stirring. The translation into English is, is well done, and the, the words are beautiful, and it just moves us to worship. It says, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the call to worship pasture in the sheep of his hand. Right? That's the positive call to worship and faithfulness and trust. And then at the backside 
of Psalm 95, there's a warning. And the warning is about the Israelites who were rescued from slavery in Egypt. And they had seen amazing things. They had seen the, the plagues, and they'd seen the sea part, and they'd seen God provide for them. And yet they got out in the wilderness, and they grumbled. And they complained. And they never trusted the Lord to take care of them. Even when he brought them right up to the edge of the promised land, they refused to go in because they did not believe God could win the battle. Those people were too big. They were too strong. Their cities were too fortified. We don't want to go fight. And there was a consequence for those people. And Psalm 95 talks about that consequence. You see it at the very last verse of Psalm 95. The Lord swore in his wrath, they shall not enter my Rest. Rest. You need to circle the word rest if you're in Psalm 95. You need to think about the word rest if you're looking at Hebrews 4. Because in Hebrews 4, there's a reference to rest 12 times. It's not a long chapter. And over and over and over again, the author of Hebrews is talking about rest. 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 It just keeps coming over. It's this drumbeat all the way through the chapter. Now, I don't want you to actually shout out an answer. I always say that because some of you are very eager with answers. So I'm not asking for an answer, but I'm just curious. What comes into your mind when you think about rest? A lot of you have asked me this morning, how was your vacation? And my answer has been, it was good. We had fun. I don't know that I would say it was restful, Right? Some of you who have traveled with children or grandchildren, you know, you come home from vacation and you feel like you need a vacation from your vacation. You need a rest after your vacation. And so here's a picture of the group of us that went on vacation. There's a bunch of us. We were in one house and uh, four different families there and a bunch of little kids. And, you know, in your mind, you think, let's just run them ragged and keep them up late and they'll sleep in late and they don't sleep in late. They just wake up and they're ready to go again. And so you do it all over again. We were in Rockwall. Uh, this is what our vacation was. Um, family pictures. That's not restful for anybody. Family pictures. Uh, went to a zoo. Not restful. Went to an aquarium. Also not restful. Went to a mall, which was okay. But then going back to the car in the parking garage, we got lost. So also not restful. Walking around the parking garage trying to find, did a little bit of fishing, did a little bit of swimming, lots of activity, not a lot of rest. And you probably had the same experience where you go on vacation and you come back and you just say, I am absolutely exhausted. So what comes into your mind when you think about the idea of rest? If you wanted to give me some Sunday school answers, here are some possibilities that you might just throw out and we could put up on the screen. One would be creation. Maybe you would say rest. Didn't God do that in the beginning? And the answer would be yes, he did. He created and he spoke all of the things that exist into existence. And on the last day, the seventh day of the creation week, he rested. It wasn't because he was tired. It was because he was done. He was finished with what he wanted to do. So he rested from work. And so that would be part of the biblical idea of rest. Maybe you'd think about the Sabbath. If you were part of our Ten Commandments study uh, a while back uh, on Wednesday evenings, we talked about each of the different Ten Commandments, and Commandment 4 talks about you're going to work this many days, and then you're going to rest 
on the Sabbath day. You're not going to work because God did that in the beginning. He worked and then he stopped working and he saved you from Egypt to be his people. So you're going to worship on that day. So maybe your mind would go to the Sabbath and you would say that has something to do with rest. Maybe your mind would go to the promised land. That's sort of what Psalm 95 is talking about. And there was certainly this idea when God saved these people from Egypt that he said, I'm going to bring you into a land where you're going to have rest. You're going to have cities that you didn't build. You're going to have vineyards that you didn't plant. You're going to have all these things that I'm just going to give to you and you didn't work for them. There's going to be rest. And we just read Psalm 95. The generation that refused to go in and the Lord was angry with him and he said, you will not enter my rest. You will all die in the wilderness. And he brought their children in. Maybe your mind would go to Jesus, right? That's the ultimate Sunday school answer. You skip all the other stuff and you just go straight to Jesus. And you think about Jesus in Matthew 11. He said to his disciples these words that you're familiar with. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. All of those answers would be right when you're thinking about the idea of rest. And all of those answers sort of play into what Hebrews 4 is telling us about rest and what it is that we're chasing. It comes up 12 times in Hebrews 4, and all of it adds together and it's this idea that when we know God and we have a relationship with God, we find rest. Right? We find everything in its place. We find a, a sense of peace in our souls, a sense of calm in our souls. We have rest when we know the Lord and when we're enjoying His presence. And you know that we may have sort of glimpses of that now, but that we're waiting for that rest ultimately to be experienced in heaven when we're with the Lord and we see Him face to face. Hebrews 4 is talking to us about that idea of rest. Here's the big idea of chapter 4. Very simple. God's people should fear the possibility of missing rest. That should be something you fear. should be afraid that you would miss it. And positively, we're encouraged to strive to enter that rest. And I'm just going to admit that's sort of an oxymoron. But that's straight out of Hebrews 4. You're going to work. You're going to labor. You're going to strive to enter rest. And both of these ideas are found in chapter 4. And so just quickly, if you look at verse 1, Hebrews 4, 1, it says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. There should be fear and trembling when you think about this rest that you might miss it, that people actually miss this rest. Fear that. And then positively, we're striving to enter it. Verse 11 in Hebrews 4. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. All right, so that's the big idea of the book. What I'd like us to do is read the chapter, and then we'll jump in and talk about what the Scripture says. So Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1, you follow along as I read. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands... Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. 
As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in the passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. Father, this morning we pray that you would take this book, book of Hebrews, you take this chapter, chapter 4, and you press it into our hearts. Father, we want to hear the warning. We want to fear the possibility of missing rest. We need rest. Father, we need you. Father, we want to understand what does it look like to strive to enter your rest. And Father, whatever that looks like is what we want to do. And for us to understand this and for us to believe this and for us to live this, we need your help. And so we ask for your help this morning, and we do it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're busy people, right? We are busy, busy people. We're busy when we go on vacation. We're busy when we're not on vacation. We have lots of things going on in our life, and it's a little bit ironic. All of the technology we have in our lives originally was sort of designed to make us less busy, right? Let's invent something so we don't have to do that thing and it will give us more time to do what we want to do. And we have all of this technology and we're just as busy as we've ever been. In fact, we're probably more busy than we've ever been. We have cell phones that go with us and they allow us to do amazing things, but they take busyness with us wherever we go. Right? You can't get away from it. The phone rings and the email dings off and the text message comes through. And there's busyness everywhere we go. We carry busyness around 
in the palm of our hands. We have apps. We buy apps. We download apps. We use things like OneNote or Evernote or uh, productivity apps. And these apps promise us if you'll use this app, you'll be able to do more things in less time. You'll be more productive. You'll be, be able to accomplish more. And yet we're just busy. We're busy, we're busy, all the time busy. You can get on Amazon with your phone and your Amazon app, and you can get on, and you can just type in busyness or time management or productivity. And there are thousands upon thousands of books that you can download directly to your hand, or you can buy and they'll ship it to you about how to be productive and how to manage your time and how to be less busy. The problem is you don't have time to read those books. Because we're so busy. We live in the Permian Basin, and at least for us, life just always seems like it's very busy. The work week is a little bit longer than it is in other places. Every sort of uh, thing that comes up during your work week is a, a crisis, an emergency, and you're just chasing and chasing and chasing. We're busy, busy people. Sometimes all that busyness leaves you feeling like somebody trying to travel in a rocking chair, right? You're doing a lot of moving but you're not getting anywhere. Like somebody in a race, you're supposed to be swimming for the goal at the end of the swimming lane, but all you're doing is treading water, keeping your head above. Maybe you've read the, the book by Lewis Carroll, Alice in Wonderland or Alice Through the Looking Glass. At one point, the Red Queen says this to Alice, it takes all the running you can do to keep in the same place. If you want to get somewhere else, you've got to run twice as fast as that. That may be how you feel. I'm running as fast as I can, I'm moving as fast as I can, and I just seem stuck in this one spot. I don't feel like I'm making any progress. And listen, all of this busyness that we experience in our calendars, in our uh, work schedules, in our overtime hours, in our family responsibilities, even on our vacations, all this busyness also impacts us on a heart level. And it would be one thing for us to say, you know, us modern, advanced, sophisticated people, we know what true busyness is like, but this is not just an American problem, it's a human problem. And the great church father Augustine understood busyness and restlessness and all of the things tied up in, in what we're talking about in Hebrews 4. And maybe Augustine's most famous quote, he said, Thou hast formed us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. See, it's not just a problem of technology. It's not just a problem for Americans. It's a human problem. That what we're looking for is rest. A sense of wholeness and peace and completeness and rightness. And we're chasing it in lots of different ways. And we don't ever seem to be able to get there. And Augustine puts his finger on the issue and he says, Look, we're going to be restless until we find rest. In the Lord. And the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, jumps into that conversation, and the chapter is telling us this is how you find rest. It's not as simple as just clearing your calendar, it's not as simple as a vacation in a hammock and cut the pictures in the zoo and the aquarium and just lay in the hammock for a week. That's not how you find it. But the book of Hebrews tells us this is how you find true and lasting rest. And so the question for us this morning is very simple. How do God's people strive to enter his rest? 
How do we actually strive to enter it? That's what verse 11 calls us to do. Let us strive to enter that rest. How do we do it? Let me give you a few simple thoughts. Number one, we need to learn from the faithless, disobedient Israelites. There's an example set before us. And the example is put before us so that we say, don't be like them. Don't do what those people did. It's the first 10 verses in Hebrews 4. And it's actually a section that goes back to Hebrews chapter 3. And so Hunter talked about some of this last week in Hebrews 3. But Hebrews 3, 7 all the way up through about 4.10 is just sort of one big section. And it's talking about the Israelites. And here's the takeaway from that section. Moses could not lead the people to rest. He led them out of Egypt. But he couldn't lead them to true rest. And if you know the Old Testament story, you say, well, Moses didn't do it, but maybe Joshua did. Because Moses died, and then Joshua led them into the promised land, and they fought all those battles, and they got to go in. So Joshua was the guy who gave them rest, right? Wrong. The author of Hebrews is making this point. He says, Moses couldn't do it, Joshua couldn't do it, and he quotes Psalm 95. And what he's saying is this, hundreds of years after Moses, after Joshua, they're still looking for rest. David writes this psalm, the king, to people living in a kingdom. And he's saying to them, don't miss God's rest like they did. If you hear his voice today, the Lord is speaking to you today. Don't harden your heart like those people did. Because the Lord was angry with them and he swore. How many times does he quote it? He swore in his wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So we look at these people and we say, okay, I'm supposed to learn from their example. What really was the problem with these people? I'm supposed to not be like them. What was really the issue? We look at Hebrews 4 verse 2. It says they lacked faith. It says the good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard didn't benefit them. They heard from the Lord, but it didn't make any difference in their life. Why? Because they were not united by faith with those who listened. They didn't trust the Lord. There's a lack of faith. There's faithlessness. And there's also disobedience. Look at verse 6. It says, It remains for some to enter it, to enter rest. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter. Why did they fail to enter the rest? Because of disobedience. There's a lack of faith. It's a lack of trust in the Lord, and there's disobedience. This is not rocket science. This is very simple preschool, Sunday school stuff. You need to trust the Lord, and you need to obey the Lord. And if you're looking for rest apart from faith in Jesus Christ, or you're looking for rest when you're intentionally, knowingly walking in disobedience to the Lord, you're like the guy in the rocking chair trying to make a trip. You might be doing a lot of moving. There might be a lot of activity. There might be a lot of business, but you're not going to get where you're trying to go. You're like the person treading water instead of actually swimming in the race. You're just staying in one, put, one, one spot. You're like Alice. You're not running fast enough. You're just running to stay in one spot. You will never have rest, true rest, apart from faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and obedience to God. And if you're looking for it any other way, any other place, you're not going to find it. So we learn 
from the faithless, disobedient Israelites. Secondly, we submit to the Word of God. We submit to the Word of God. Most of our focus is going to be the back half of Hebrews 4. And so I'd like you to look at Hebrews 4 and let's read 12 and 13 again. It says, For the Word of God is living and active. It's living and active. It is sharper than a two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, in discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from its sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Just a couple of words I want you to notice, and you could circle them in your Bible. I'll put them up on the screen as you think about the Word of God. The author of Hebrews says it's living Word of God is living. How many people do you know who think about God and the Bible and church and all of it and they think, oh, that just sounds like death. That's like the end of life as you know it. It's just a bunch of rules and restrictions and hindrances. In the biblical worldview, we completely disagree. We believe the opposite. This book doesn't limit your life. This book gives you life. It's a living book. It's not dead, but it's living. The Word of God is living. It's piercing. The Word of God is piercing. Notice some of the the words used here. Soul and spirit. Look, there's folks who, who quote this verse and they say your soul is one thing and your spirit is another thing. I don't think that's the point of this verse at all. I think in the biblical worldview, your soul and your spirit are the same thing. And we can argue about that later. But I think the point here is your soul and your spirit is the same thing. It's one thing. And the word of God will pierce to the middle of it. He talks about joints and marrow. Look, there's not, a, there's not a clear dividing line where you can say in the joint and the bone and the marrow and this is where this, but it's just, it's all there and, and the author is saying it divides that. It finds the middle of that. He talks about thoughts and intentions of the heart. I don't think there's a big difference between thoughts and intentions. I think the author of Hebrews is saying the word of God will pierce your heart. Here's what he's saying. You can lie to me and fool me. Doesn't take much. You can lie to your spouse, fool your spouse. People do it all the time. You can lie to your kids and fool your kids. You can lie to your parents and fool your parents. It's not that difficult. You can show up here and you can put on some sort of front and we'll all believe everything's great in your life and we'll never know the difference. The Word of God cuts through all that stuff. It exposes you. It just lays you bare. Did you hear what he said in verse 13? I'm going to put it up on the screen in the ESV, and then I'm going to give it to you in the NIV. He says, all are naked and exposed. And the NIV says, everything is uncovered and laid bare. Translators don't know how to translate that last word, that last phrase. What it literally means is the word of God puts you in a headlock and wrenches your neck back. So if I don't like MMA, but if you like MMA, you just picture the guys on the ground and somebody's in a headlock and he's pulling back on it. You get in that spot, there's only one thing you can do. Submit. Tap out. I read that and I think about one of my friends growing up. His family, they were all wrestlers. 
And wrestling was my least favorite thing growing up. If you're kind of tall and lanky, wrestling is not for you. Let me just, I promise you, it's not for you. Little short, stocky guys are wrestlers. Tall, lanky guys are not wrestlers. And I hated wrestling. We'd go over to this guy's house, and he had a big brother. And looking back on it, he was not a big guy, but he was a strong guy, and he was bigger than us, and he was mean. And he would come in there while we were playing video games or watching TV or doing whatever we were doing. And just unprovoked, he would grab his brother and put him in some kind of wrestling hold and wrench this or twist that or pull back on that until he submitted. That was the goal of the wrestling move. I want you to give up. That's the same sort of language the author of Hebrews is using about the Scriptures. It will get a hold of you if you submit to it. It will pierce your heart. It will cut through all the nonsense that you can pass off to everyone else, and it will lay you bare. It will expose you. And the only thing that you can do, the only thing that I can do, is submit to it. You can fight it all you want to fight it. You can be like Jacob, wrestling with the angel all night long. You can have the conflict and the turmoil and the battle, but what really needs to happen in the end is you just need to tap out. That's what Jacob did. In the end of the story, he's begging for a blessing. He's begging for this person not to leave without blessing him. The end is submission. And if you want peace, you find it by submitting, submitting to the Word of God. There's a beautiful story about how this works. You can look it up later. It's 2 Kings 22. It's a story of a young man named Josiah. He was eight years old when he became the king of Judah. And he sits on the throne and For the most part, Josiah was a really, really good king. When he was about 26 years old, one day something happened. It was very shocking, and I'm going to just put it up on the screen, and we'll read what happened. Josiah's 26, and it says, Hilkiah, the high priest, it's the high priest in Judah, the guy in charge of all the religious affairs, he says to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. I don't know where else you would find it. That's a good place to look for it. But he really wasn't even looked for it. It's almost as if he just stumbled across it. I found a book, the book of the law. I found it in the house of the Lord. When you read this story, it's fascinating. Hilkiah reads the book to Shaphan. He reads it to him. It's a long book. Book of the law, Genesis to Deuteronomy. He reads him the book. And then Shaphan takes the book and he goes to see Josiah and he reads the book to Josiah. So high priest reads it to the secretary. The secretary takes it and reads it to the king. And this is what happens when they hear the word of God. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. He tore his clothes because he said, we've broken it. We are breaking it. We're guilty. That book exposed Josiah, and it exposed Hilkiah, and it exposed Shaphan. And as they read it and as they taught it to all the people, it exposed the people. And the craziest thing happened when the people were hearing the word of God and submitting themselves to the word of God, revival broke out in the nation. And it was too late to sort of turn the tide on Judah. Judah eventually went into exile, and it wasn't much long after this. But what a great thing that instead of a bunch of pagan Judeans going into exile, a bunch of God-fearing Judeans 
went into exile. I bet you're like me. I bet you go home and you watch the news, you turn on the TV, you listen to the radio, and you think, our country needs change. It needs revival. It needs awakening. This is how you get it. You submit to the Word of God. You listen to the Word of God. You don't try to stand in judgment over His Word, but you tap out and you submit to it. And the world hears that and the world says, ah, it just sounds like defeat and groveling. And we hear that and we say, no, that sounds like rest. It's rest. That's how you find rest. You submit to the Word of God. You learn from the faithless, disobedient Israelites. Number three, you hold to your faith in Jesus, our high priest. You hold on to your faith. This is beautiful because it's not really something that we do. It's something that's been done for us. And you just hold on to it. You just cling to it. You believe it. Look at verse 14 and 15. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Hold fast. Don't give it up. Believe the gospel. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sins. I try not to give you too many long quotes on a Sunday morning, but there's a quote I want to share with you. It's from C.S. Lewis. It's so helpful when you think about Jesus, our high priest. Look what he says. He says, there's a silly idea, current, that good people do not know what temptation means. That's an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply doesn't know what it would have been like an hour later. That's why bad people, I love this line, in one sense, know very little about badness. They've lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. This is our high priest who never sinned. He experienced temptation like we experience temptation, but whereas we lie down and we give in and we just roll over, he never gave in and he never sinned. He's a transcendent high priest. Verse 14 says he has passed through the heavens. He's not just like us. He's transcendent, but he's also tender. Verse 15, he can sympathize with our weaknesses. He's human and he knows what it's like to suffer and he knows what it's like to be tempted. And this high priest says, Come to me, those of you who labor in your heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I'll give you rest. He lived for us, he died for us, and we hold fast to our faith that because he lived and he died, he offers rest. And the book of Hebrews says, Hold on to that faith. If you're looking for rest, you hold on to that faith. 
Last, we approach the throne of grace with confidence. So we're going to learn, we're going to submit, we're going to hold, we're going to approach the throne of grace with confidence. Verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Just a couple of words I want you to focus on in verse 16. The first one is the word throne. That word reminds us to come humbly. It reminds us to come before the king. We read Psalm 95. The Lord is a great God. He's greater than all the gods. He is a great king. We come to him as he's on his throne. We come humbly. We don't come with presumption or pride. We come as sinners. We come before his throne. But I also want you to think about the word grace. We come to him, yes, as he's on his throne, but we come to him as a God of grace. This is how you come to the Lord when you've experienced and received rest. You come to his throne and you come looking for mercy and grace to help in your time of need. You don't come shouting, barking orders. You don't come crying out loud as if you need to get his attention and you don't currently have his attention. You don't come like Queen Esther cowering before the throne, wondering whether or not she'll be allowed to live or not. You come boldly. You come confidently. The Lord is on his throne, but the Lord is the God of grace. We approach the throne of grace with confidence. Why? Because we hold to our our faith. We hold fast to our faith that Jesus lived for us and that he died for us. We're going to submit our lives to the authority of his word. We're going to learn from those in the past who have failed to enter his rest. And in all of those ways, we're striving as the people of God, side by side, shoulder to shoulder, to enter rest. And so we're going to do that together this morning as we pray.